You're listening to Notes from Norwich. Welcome to Notes from Norwich, episode number 17. These uh, these just keep on climbing. Uh, and so do the chapters. We're dealing with chapters 38 and 39 and maybe 40. Uh, and I'm I've uh, just as a a little hobby just to keep my mind occupied from uh, COVID issues. I'm I'm just practicing math lately because it's very satisfying. It's a, like got a right answer or a wrong answer. So what my mind immediately did was to say chapter thirty eight. That's that's uh, two times seventeen, and this is episode seventeen. So uh, <laughs> that's what I'm doing. Wow. Um. So I'm Chris, and I'm here with my other two friends and hosts who are uh, right here. I'm JN. And I'm Marguerite. How are you two? Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> we, said, we said we weren't going to do that because we're all in the Midwest, and we're all just going to say not bad. And that's what we did. We're all not bad. How are you, listeners? So uh, let's just jump right into chapter 38 then, since we're all not bad. And God showed that sin shall not be shame, but honor to man. That's quite a bold claim, don't you think? It is. Not only is everything going to be okay, it's going to be honor and blessing. Uh, I don't think that's the conventional wisdom regarding sin. No, not as I've encountered it. Um, it is a, it's a much stronger kind of framing of the good that comes out of things. Um, I mean, I, th- I think I've encountered mostly perspectives that sin will be healed, but it, it, it's like, it's a wrong that will be righted, not necessarily turned into something positive. Um, and that, that's what I've, that's pretty much what I've seen across theological traditions. Um, so this is, this is a really strong, a really bold claim. Even bolder in her time, I would have to mm. say. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems there's, she's got this idea that for every sin, there's a corresponding pain in reality. And every sin has a corresponding blessing, um, which is just, uh, I have, I mean, I've been starting the semester, so I'm looking at tables of contents and indices and things. And so I'm kind of picturing this kind of list of sins with the pain and then a third column that says, this is the corresponding blessing, which I know is not what she has in mind, but there's this idea that like, these these uh these blessings are not incidental they they come with like they're they're part of this process um that they follow from the sin and its its pain and also the blessing follows from that is what I, is what i kind of see her saying what i see her saying too and I could be wrong about this, but I think she's talking about the individual soul that 
the human being commits a sin of some sort and then experiences pain from it. And then from the pain, uh, then after that derives a blessing. And this is what happens to the individual person. She uses this word victories, which I find intriguing. Um, just as various sins are punished with various pains according to how grievous they are, just so shall they be rewarded with different joys in heaven for their victories after the sins have been painful and sorrowful to the soul on earth. I'm, I'm intrigued by this, this concept of victory and whose victory and victory how. Is this, is this the soul's victory? Are we are we being rewarded for our victories over these sins? That doesn't necessarily seem consistent with I, I with think a, we're we're participating in Christ's joy mm. at Christ's victory. Mm. Uh, but I think that's kind of a mood that I take from the whole sweep of the revelations, Mm -hmm. which is that uh, everything is so powerfully in the control of God that we are participating in a work that is so vast compared to us that we are swept up in it. And so any Suffering that happens to us is within the context of this huge work of God, this great deed. Um, and also the joy that we experience it has nothing to do with us or our effort, but is a sharing in that joy that comes, I think, from the heart of God. Right. She says that the goodness of God never permits the soul that shall finally come there to sin unless those sinners of that sort are to be rewarded and made known in Holy Church on earth, etc. So one of the things that I did yesterday afternoon um, was to, uh, for the first time in my life, mix up a batch of mortar and repoint some of the uh, cinder block wall in my garage because it had worn away, eroded, you know, right down by the ground. Um, the winters here in Wisconsin, as they do in Minnesota, um, it's very harsh on mortar. And so I, I've been saying all summer long that before the cold weather arrives, I have to get out there and fix that or the ice is going to get in there this winter and just destroy that wall. So for the first time, I looked up YouTube videos and figured out how to uh, how to do all this stuff. And I went to the store and I got the stuff and I mixed up the mortar and I have fixed the wall. So the work that is done uh, is good. It's good work. The wall is now repaired. And I personally have been like for the last 24 hours, like... I repaired a wall. You know, I've I've been very uh 
I've been taking great delight in this sense of accomplishment at this thing that probably, you know, half of the people at the local Lowe's have done dozens of times. And they're, you know, it's no great accomplishment in one scheme of things. But um, I wonder if that's kind of the parallel here, that the, that we're like the cinder block wall. We get We get eroded away and we get repaired. But then God takes such a great delight at the at the repair, at seeing the repair, at, at doing the repairs, um, that it's out of all proportion to, to us and what we deserve and what we can experience and what we participate in, we just kind of get caught up in this, this great sense of, I imagine, kind of gleeful pride on God's part. Like, look at all this stuff that's being fixed. Mm. Maybe that's an analogy. I don't know. So it's a sharing in the great victory. These little victories, after the sins have been painful and sorrowful, it's God's victory that then we are sharing in in these little instantiations, where there where there was pain in a, in relation to these sins, we we see particular reflections of that great joy and um, beaming pride of God in, in the work. I think so. And I think, so then she turns to saints Mm -hmm. and I think saints tie into all of this and we'll get into saints uh, in a minute um, or like, we'll really dig into it. But I think the, one of the, the ways that this ties in is that we take delight in saints. Um, and what we're taking delight in is seeing how God has transformed their lives and brought them through their own sinfulness. Hmm. And we can look at their lives and see that turn and that flourishing and that healing. Um, and it brings us happiness to take delight in it. Um, and if it brings us happiness and the life of Saint, you know, Saint Aidan's feast day today, and I've got his little icon right behind me. And I take, you know, I love Saint Aidan. He feels, uh, like a, like a hero of mine. And I have absolutely nothing at all to do with his life. But I take delight in reading his life story. And I imagine that that's a tiny little glimpse of what it's like for God to see that transformation and the transformation is all the greater if people are coming out of the deepest, darkest, darkest depths. Hmm. I would think. Yeah. Yeah. And so the saints are invitations for us to share in that in, that joy in the lives of others. So in the, in the end, we will see how this gets worked out in our own lives. And the saints are sort of external mirrors of this, this process where we, we see it's a way for us to see this thing at work um, 
even when our kind of myopic focus on ourselves is is caught up in the sinfulness and the like in the drudge um the saints are some are people that we can look external to ourselves and see the transformation and god's delight in that transformation so they're i don't know for i don't know forte's kind of emblems anchors for us to hold on to i think so but and i i uh and- I, I never want the saints to just be exemplars. Mm-hmm. I want mm-hmm. to remind myself that part of what it means to be a, a communion, the communion of saints that I hope to one day be part of um, in the grandest sense, is that um, out of love, I should be learning to to delight in their sainthood simply for their sake. Mm-hmm. And only secondarily say, well, they are also great teachers and mentors and exemplars to me. But it's very self-centered for me to say, you know, St. Aidan only became a saint in order to inspire me. I mean, he did it for his own sake and his own, uh, I mean, he didn't do it at all. God did it in him. But Stories. The saints have stories, and that gives us a lot to hold on to. So Julian mentions some specific saints here in chapter 38. David and others in the old law with him without number. And then in the new law, Mary Magdalene, Peter and Paul, and Thomas and Jude. And St. John of Beverly. Who? Right. St. John of Beverly, and she spends a lot of time referring to him in the rest of chapter 38. And the way that she talks about him, it's very hard to understand if you Google him, for instance, or look him up in a hagiology. um, You're not going to get the kind of thing that she's talking about. So... Father John Julian, founder of the Order of Julian, did a lot of research. I mean, just years and years and years of research on Julian and everything that she said, every word. And he found a chapbook that came, uh, that was in Dutch. It was found in Brussels um, by, um, he did, he himself did not find this book, but he found about it um, a Dr. Alan Dayton, who was a professor of German and um, medieval studies at the University of Hull. Anyway, Dr. Dayton found this chapbook, and it is in Dutch, and it talks about Jan of Beverly. And Jan of Beverly um, was, first of all, an earl, and he had a son, Jan, and a daughter, Colette. And when his son, Jan, who would have been the next earl, grew up, he decided to renounce his earldom, renounce everything worldly about himself or that he had a, a claim to, and go, off and, be, um, and go off and be a hermit and just pray all day. And, of course, his father was upset about that, but that was the way it was. And so off went Jan to live in his hermitage and... 
while he was there, the devil came to him in the form of an angel and said to him, because you have been so prideful about your piety, in order to avoid eternal damnation, you must commit one of three sins, either drunkenness or unchastity or murder. Well, of course, Jan chose what he thought would be the least of those sins, drunkenness, but in his drunkenness ended up committing both unchastity and murder on his sister, Colette. When he sobered up the next day, he, of course, felt terrible. He was consumed by guilt and, and contrition and repentance, and he buried her and went off to Rome to make confession to the Pope. Now, the Pope, of course, this was, a, this was an anonymous confession. The Pope didn't know what to say to him. And so he said, you should go and talk to Jan of Beverly back in England, which is ironic, right? So, so he, you know, failing, failing to obtain absolution from the Pope, he goes back and he decides that he, what he's going to do, he's going to walk only on all fours, eat only grass, drink only water until he receives absolution, which he perceives or senses or sees will come from a one-day-old baby. So for seven years, yes, a one-day-old baby. So for seven years, he lives like that in the woods, walking on all fours, eating only grass, drinking only water. But what happens after seven years but the then newly made Earl of Beverly comes and goes hunting in those woods with some friends and sees this strange creature whom he just says, this is just a bizarre creature. I'm going to take him home and show him to my one-day-old son, my newborn son. And so there goes John, Jan of Beverly to this one-day-old baby, receives absolution from the one-day-old baby, straightens up, goes back, finds his, digs his sister up, who has not been dead all these seven years, but instead has been instead has been living in heaven and, you know, walking the, the golden streets, et cetera, et cetera, and enjoying all the, the glorious um, company of saints and angels, et cetera, et cetera. And they are very happy, and um, they go off then to receive the sacrament because now he has had absolution, so now he can receive the sacrament. And that is the story of John of Beverly. Now, what Julian is doing here is she's showing that this sin, that John, well, first of all, He was tricked into it, A, but this sin that he committed really didn't happen. At least in God's eyes, it was just poof. It was just nothing. And so, nevertheless, he went through all this ordeal of of repentance and, and obtaining absolution in this bizarre way. But after all that, it just it all went away. I mean, it it wasn't even real to begin with. So sin is no thing, according to God, according to Julian. It just vanished. So, what do you think? Wow. That is nuts. It is a great story. I mean, it it is an absolute, and it has folkloric, you know, implications. The, The devil dressed up like an angel um, living like an animal for seven years, you know, that sort of thing. So it, 
you know, you have to you have to assume that this was a, sort of a compilation of some folkloric um, information that people had, and then they applied it to John and Beverly because stories are great, and they teach us about God, and they teach us about the world, and so let's have more. So, okay, I'm trying to, I'm setting aside the kind of bizarre frill elements. Um, though I suspect the fact it's a one day old baby actually is not just a fringe element, but um, so this idea that so he's, he's tricked into this sin um, and does seven years of penance um is is the point that he didn't need to do the penance because it was never real it was real in his heart mm. i think i think it was his i think it was his 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 feelings of it and his sense of guilt and his sense of um, that he had done this horrible thing, and that that's what made him have to do that. I that's that's how I'm that's how I'm reading it. As I read it, it's it's not that sin never exists, but that it is wiped away in the blink of an eye. That's by a one-day-old baby. By a one-day-old baby, yeah. So, and here's the movement. And again, like I said at the very beginning, I'm, I'm as a hobby, my wife is a math teacher, so I'm surrounded by worksheets and things. But I'm, I'm, do, I'm going back through all of, like, pre-algebra and algebra just to refresh my memory about that. So I've been graphing things lately. So in my mind, I have all these, you know, graphs, and there's a graph of this movement in this, it's in reading 77 in the Orange Book. With this, he made mention that in St. John's youth, and in his tender time of life, he was a dear, worthy servant of God, much loving and fearing God. So that's like baseline, good Christian kid. Nevertheless, God allowed him to fall. So it is a real fall. Mercifully protecting him so that he doesn't fall so so far that he's lost, but definitely he messes up. Definitely there is sin, and the graph plunges down below that x-axis <laughs> uh, into negative numbers. And afterward, God raised him to many times more grace, and so that line shoots back up, way up higher than he was before. And by the contrition and humility that he showed in his living, God has given him in heaven manifold joys exceeding what he would have if he had not fallen. So if he had just been a good Christian kid and had never messed up, he would never have had the opportunity to go through that transformation. And I think it's the transformation that is the key to all this. That if we were to just be born and to do exactly what we're told to do and then to die, that would be maybe satisfying, impossible, but 
that would make us exactly like all the other creatures. But, um, but Hmm. I think we're intended for more as humans. That's my anthropology, at least. Our destiny is greater than what we're capable of achieving. So our story, and I think it's true for all of us, and the saints that we name as saints are just the ones who have gone through it in a publicly visible way so that we can see it in them. They're the ones who go through this dipping below baseline and then jumping up to way higher than they would have before um in the same way okay in the same way that jesus after his resurrection is greater than jesus before his resurrection but he can only get there by dying mm-hmm. so in order for us to achieve more than our baseline we have to dip down another analogy if you're on a springboard you uh you bounce down so that the end of the the springboard goes below its starting point in order so that it can fling you up in the air how's that i'm full That's of analogies fun. today I like that. lots of analogies yeah. i'm going to take a sip of water <laughs> <laughs> the uh the parallel with jesus pre and post resurrection and having to go through the depths of hell um, to reach that highest glory. Um, that, that makes it a very compelling anthropology to me because we are, we are then following that same trajectory in a tiny part in our own lives, participating in that fall and descent and then being raised up to many times more grace. Um, yeah. That that is, that is the best story. It's a better story than us never having fallen. Now, if I were more knowledgeable than I am, I feel as though I could bring in here the medieval debate between the Dominicans and the Franciscans about the purpose of the incarnation and the big question they were wrestling with. And I think it's done Scotus against Thomas Aquinas. Would the incarnation have happened if there had been no fall? And I think, and probably there will be a reader who, or a listener who, tweets at me if I'm wrong. I think the Dominican view was that, no, the incarnation is a response to the fall, that we're Mm -hmm. created, and because we fell and that needed to be remedied, the incarnation happened. Right. To to fix the broken an It's an intervention in the Dominican view. Well, in the Franciscan view, the incarnation was, the whole point of creation was to set a stage for God to enter into the world. Mm-hmm. So the fact that the fall happened to happen just dragged the whole of creation below that baseline. But the goal was always for the incarnation to to rocket the whole of creation up to 
a, a higher height than it had at its creation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's right. And so in that sense, uh, what Julian seems to be talking about sounds very similar to this Franciscan perspective that we're created, but the whole, the whole point had always been to wind up higher, higher. Yeah. Yeah. I like at, it. At, uh, yeah. Yeah. Why? With, with the caveat that that might be an oversimplification of the Aquinas versus Duns Scotus um, debate, but that, that, yeah. Um, that resonates with the way I've understood that debate. And I, I, I agree that that kind of Franciscan esque vision that the higher glory was always the plan. Um, and so the fall just makes that all the more powerful, that elevation, all the more powerful. Um, I know that if yeah. I get an angry tweet about it, it's going to come from a Dominican because. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they don't like being both. disagreed with. <laughs> they, they both, both perspectives enrich the church and, and we yes. all, we're all better off for the combined witness of Franciscans and Dominicans across the whole of, yes. of the Christian family. Yes. But then, yeah, the, the saint, the people we recognize as saints are people who have lived this, who have lived as a witness to this fall and, and rocketing up again um, in public and very clearly recognizable ways. I also love that she said, and God called him Saint John of Beverly as clearly as we do. And did so with a very glad, sweet expression, showing that he is a most exalted saint in heaven in his sight and a blessed one. Um, that there are, there are these kind of people whose lives are iconic representations of this fall and rise. Um, and that those are the people that we we recognize as saints and who are a neighbor, who are neighbors at hand and of our acquaintance. And I think there, there I see in those, that phrase that God brings to her mind, how John of Beverly is a neighbor at hand and of our acquaintance. She is highlighting the connection between these iconic figures and their fellow Christians. Um, that John of Beverly here is not a distant figure, but like these are the, he is, he is someone who is one of our even Christians, um, who, whose life is a striking representation of this journey of transformation. And so he is, exalted as a particularly beautiful instance of this, this journey. Exalted, but not remote. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So having traced this whole path and, and made uh, a great glory, uh, 
out of sin. Sin shall not be shame, but honor to man. Now, when I sat down to reread that this morning, getting ready for this, uh, it occurred to me that there's something similar happening in my mind when I read that, as happens at the beginning of Romans chapter 6, when Paul says, what then shall we say? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? There's this argument that happens there in Romans where it it appears that, you know, Paul says that through the movement through sin, God is glorified and we uh, receive grace. And I think he, he, I don't know if anyone was talking to him directly or if he is just great at rhetoric and he knows what arguments are going to come up. I mean, if Julian says that sin shall not be shame but honor to man, well, I want more honor, right? So I should go out and sin more so that God may be glorified all the more in my life. Yeah, she addresses that in a subsequent chapter. Yeah. In, in 40. But yeah, yeah, that is, you know, that is like the next step in thinking for. Yep. If you're thinking logically. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is. Or mathematically. But, <laughs> but we're not at chapter 40 yet, are we? We haven't. Not quite. Yet. Yeah. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. All this was to make us glad and cheerful in love. Um, so do we want to do. Chapter 39 now? Yeah. yeah. So this Chapter 39, I oh. see uh, she starts to kind of break down this journey that we go through um, in, in sort of very, uh, I, I'm a pretty schematic thinker. And so this, this is helpful for me in the way she, she lays out the journey the soul takes towards this high joy. Um, she talks about that sin is this harsh scourge that, that chastises us. Um, we, we think ourselves not worthy. Um, it's damaging us in our own eyes. Um, and then contrition seizes us. Um, through the Holy Spirit, this is this is God's grace at work in us, um, and we are directed into the life of Holy Church. Uh, so there's this like, I mean, we this has come up again and again that this this is about, um, kind of changing our perceptions to recognize. Um, the reality of God's love. Um, so like this, this, what I see in this first chapter of this first paragraph of chapter 39 is a soul turned in on itself kind of self-flagellating with sin. Um, and the Holy spirit grabs us, um, redirects our gaze and guides us into the life of Holy church where it begins to revive. What is your understanding of contrition? I mean, if contrition, if I'm, you know, if I bump into you on my way out of the coffee shop and I say, I'm sorry, that's not contrition, right? No. Um, If I 
exceed the speed limit and get a ticket from the state, I might wish I hadn't done it or wish I hadn't got caught or wish I had more money or, but that's not contrition either. Right. So what is, is that just a religious sorrow or religious regret contrition? I mean, it just seems to me that contrition is like at a, at a higher level of being sorry than regret usually feel. I, um, so I think contrition, and this is, this is a working definition that I have. Um, contrition is what happens when we reckon with the full magnitude of what we have done. Uh, not out of fear of consequences, but out of sheer recognition, recognizing the magnitude of our sin um, and having sorrow for that. I see it as distinct primarily from regret which I think stems a lot from experiencing the consequences of our sins, right. um, which is like the speeding ticket. I'm like, oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Like, if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have gotten a ticket. Um, or, uh, or even um, a, a negative feeling that a sin produces in us, like. I wish I hadn't said that to my husband because now I feel gross. Um, That is still, even if that still, like if I recognize the magnitude of that sin, there's this kind of consequential thinking that keeps me away from perfect contrition, I think. Okay. Um, Like perfect contrition I see as, seeing the sin for what it is and feeling sorrow over it because of what it is and not because of what it inflicts. Okay. Okay. So what, so then sin is something that is outside of its, uh, outside of its results. Right. Is that, am I getting that right? It, it, it is, but it's, I, I think I would, I would qualify by that by like going back to understanding it as privation. Like it, it doesn't have a substance, but, um, but it is a, a, a deficiency, a disorderedness um, that, has it doesn't have substance but it exists like it it is bad not just because of what happens because of it but because it is a deficiency of the good right right okay good and i think as far as humans go it uh whether whether it exists or not, there's still an act of of the will that that needs to be dealt with. 
if I either consciously or unconsciously move away from the will of God, um, the consequence of that is often some sort of harm to myself or to my relationships with other people or to my relationship with God. Um, the, I define contrition as both a sense of remorse and regret for sin. So there's an emotional quality to it, for me at least. I suppose it would be theoretically possible to not have that, but um, I would have to think that through. Um, and uh, a desire to um, to break from that habit, even even if it even if at the same time acknowledging that it's impossible to get completely free of sin in this life, and um, but that's one of the things that I look for, for instance, when I'm hearing confessions from people. Um, if I have some sense that this person is making a confession for X, Y, and Z, and they fully intend and expect that they're going to go right back out and do it, I don't know that that's contrition. I think even if they expect that they're going to go out and do it because it's a habitual thing, if I hear from them that they don't want to, if I hear from them a regret for a sense of powerlessness, we can work with that. There's a desire to not sin, even if that desire feels insignificant compared to the compulsions that that so often lead us to sin. There's like we have to we have to want to not sin in order for it to be contrition. Yeah. Um, and I mean there's different reasons why we might want to not sin. One of those might be because we don't want to be embarrassed or because we don't want to be caught or because we don't want to lose our status or our privilege or our position or because we're afraid that we'll wind up in hell. And all of those are imperfect compared to hating sin and and wanting to not sin simply because we love God and we want to do what God wills. So, and that's, that's a pretty sophisticated level. Uh, mm-hmm. and contrition is, is I think just one more of the kind of Christian spiritual practices that gets stronger with yes. use. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think that's how I would define it. Just a, a regret, a remorse and a desire to, not be bound up in yeah in in sin if you go ahead i think you raise a good point in that like it doesn't have to be perfect contrition to be contrition your 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 motive doesn't have to be this entirely this hatred of sin that is entirely divested from um other motives for it to have the character of contrition. But we, I think we, we ought to grow towards having perfect contrition. Right. I think the contrition comes from God. It comes from the spirit in us. It kind of awakens contrition in us. If you look at Psalm 119, which I know you both are very familiar with, 
it goes on for, well, two and a half days in the lectionary of considering the law and please help me obey the law. And I look at the law every day and I love it and I want it, but I can't do it, but I need you to help me do it. And this goes on and on and on. And this tells me that here's the psalmist begging for contrition, Mm. begging for such an understanding of the law that any breach of it would be impossible for him or her because their oneness with God is so true that any any break would strike them to the to the very core and th- but th- but they're not there they're not there they're asking for that they're wanting that they're trying and trying and trying and trying to get that so i think that I think perfect contrition, if it comes ever to anyone, it comes as a gift from the Holy Spirit. And it is a blessing beyond, just beyond all belief, that you can look at look at your sin and see that you have, I don't know, wounded the universe, distorted creation, and that you are aware of that and now are and now feel and now feel contrition for it mm-hmm. i mean that's that's just a wonderful thing nice work if you can get it as they say <laughs> but then contrition, contrition is for julian the beginning of the story mm-hmm. um and so she talks, contrition leads us into the life of Holy Church, and the Holy Spirit then leads us to confession, where we willingly confess our sins nakedly and honestly with great sorrow and great shame that we have befouled the fair image of God. So contrition then leads itself to an expression of contrition in the form of confession that um and here i see her saying like so there's there's an internal dimension of contrition that then needs to be worked out in an external acknowledgement um through confession um that, that we we don't we don't stop at hating sin and desiring to not sin we we then work that out uh by naming that um So now I'm I'm doing my thing in my mind with the the graph about how we dip down and then make the turn and head back up again and it's I, I want now I'm wanting to say that contrition is coming to terms with the reality that you're about to hit rock bottom like you can see the the ground coming up at you quickly and the ground is going to win and this realization that you need to make some changes uh and you know, there's different ways to do that. I've, I've, I've known plenty of people who have told me that they're going to definitely quit drinking this time just because they're hung over. And then there's a different quality when they say, actually, I want to quit drinking because, uh, I want to save my life. And that's a whole different thing. 
but then that confession is the first act of, uh, you know, so, so the contrition is the recognition that you're hitting the floor and somewhere in there, there has to be the question, all right, so what are you going to do about it? And confession is that first, um, that first step of beginning to rebuild. It's the very first step of, um, a powerful step, but that powerful first step of re restoring the relationship that's broken in sin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's that to continue the, the drinking metaphor, or it's not even a metaphor. It's an example. Um, confession is that first time you say I'm an alcoholic it is naming that rock bottom um, and turning. Um, yeah. Which is then followed by penance for Julian which all seems to have the goal of instilling humility. Yeah. So penance, usually some sort of assignment task, uh, um, to-do list item that is given by the confessor to the penitent. That is, uh, a, um, some sort of tangible effort, that shows the desire, the willingness, the will to begin to live according to a different pattern of life. Um, usually what I do is I will assign the, the reading of some passage of scripture or, um, yeah, that's, that's the most usual one. I'll say, you know, Mm -hmm read these Psalms over the next mm-hmm. four days or something. Um, Specific prayer practice or something. Yeah. Um, and it's usually just something concrete to focus on something to, cause you want to walk out of confession feeling like you've got a positive direction to take. Right. Um, I've, I've known doctors who say that there are patients of theirs who want a prescription for something because then they will know that they've gotten their, you know, their money's worth from the doctor. And there's, and there's like, you walk out the door, the door of the doctor's office and which way are you going to head? Well, I've been told that way, but then penance often has this kind of feeling, this attitude of punishment for it. Like, and, and that's the way it was, you know, in the church for a long time, um, that it's not really, seen in the popular imagination at least as uh, palliative yeah or as a positive first exercise but as you know you've you've been naughty now go sit in the corner for the next hour or -hmm. something but it is designed to cultivate uh 
Well, Julian says this is one humiliation that much pleases God. And I wrestle with that because I distinguish in my own mind and in my preaching between humiliation and humility. And those are two words that sound very similar, but they are not the same at all. Um, And... Humility is a virtue that we're supposed to be cultivating, the right sense of our relationship to the rest of creation and to our neighbors and to God, um, which is never as low as some people want us to feel and never as high as we sometimes place ourselves. Um, But I don't know if humiliation is the word I would choose, but I'm not Julian. She chose what she chose. I mean, there's powerful stuff in here. Humiliation, sorrow and shame, reproof and despising from the world. Bodily sickness sent from God. Yeah. This is... um, So, when I've gone to confession in the Episcopal Church, 50-50, whether the confessor will give me a penance or not. Um... And it drives me crazy when the priests will not give me a penance. Um, partly because, well, I mean, partly because I like to do's and I like I like concrete tasks. Um, but also because I know that I need. I need my confession to be worked out in a way that um, goes beyond naming the sin and so it's, you, I mean, you say in the act of contrition that it's a, you, you firmly intend amendment of life um, and I can say that and have trouble internalizing that and meaning it. And a penance, this, this act of this, some sort of act of humility of humbling myself, which I think might be what she's getting at with humiliation, a humbling, um, this active humbling, um, cultivates that sense of amendment of life happening as I leave the confession. Um, And so it could take a multitude of forms, but something instilling this attitude of humility uh, to, to remind me that the contrition that brought me to the confession like that, that, that doesn't all get tidied away when the priest says the words of absolution. There, there is still work to do yeah. when you leave the confessional. God has put away your sins. God does not look at you with blame or with shame, but there is still work to do. Yeah. And that is, I think it's an astute observation of the 
the emotional momentum of contrition. Because God can, you know, snap those divine fingers and change reality instantaneously. God does it all the time. Mm -hmm. But we take a long time to get into our trouble, and we spend a lot of time stewing in it once we recognize the problems. Um, and then just when the, the you know, absolution happens, uh, my own experience, both as a confessor and as a penitent, is that uh, making a confession or hearing a confession is such a, an emotionally vulnerable place. I have all this energy that needs to go somewhere, and I need some sort of direction. I need a channel to pour all that into for at least a few days afterwards because I, I've i spent anywhere between a few days and decades building up to the realization that I have this heavy burden that I need to carry, and it's going to take me a couple of days to actually set it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, God may say, okay, it's done, but it's going to take a while for that to sink into me. Yes. And uh, so I appreciate being given penances that feel as though they take, uh, the, as though they honor the severity of that burden. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, maybe almost as a recognition that, yeah, it, it, it really was heavy and it, it was serious. And we've all been, I'm speaking for the two of you, shake your heads vigorously if, if you haven't had this experience, where we are trying our best to make a confession of something that's very serious to us. And the the person who's hearing our confession is busy trying to tell us that that's not really a big deal. Yes. And I keep wanting to say, don't you dare take away uh, this... this uh, this vulnerability, this yes. it's a big deal to me, and so yes. therefore it's a big deal to God. Don't you dare minimize it. Yeah. Um, so. Well, I think a confessor could be trying to make you feel better, you know, trying to lift you up out of your whatever. And that's just, you know, that's just me being generous to to that person or those those people. Yeah, I think you're right. Um. And I mean, they feel they must, I think. I mean, I, I, and in today's world, I think that is, you know, that is what they would expect people would expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's confession is confession is hard. Confession naming sins is hard in my opinion um, for me always has been and uh if i can get away from how i was raised where a sin is really like that speeding ticket where you know it's like oh you did this okay you have to do that end of story good night you know see you tomorrow kind of i mean where you really are where you really have a sense that you have harmed the world, even though, you know, you didn't, I mean, just the cosmic consequence of your sin harming the world, not necessarily that you have, you know, set off a bomb or something, but 
it's it's hard to uh, it's hard to to bear the seriousness of that for a sinner, and it might be hard for many priests nowadays to hear the the seriousness or hear the hear the weight of that, and so the you know the the response is to you know, make light of it to make you feel better about yourself and no penance. But I think a penance is a wonderful thing because of all the things that you said that you both said about how this gives me, this gives me a a way forward. This gives me a path, something that I can, I can focus on now and do this and convince myself that I am uh, on the right path or that I am, that I'm, starting to be okay that I'm starting to uh, undo some of the harm that I've caused in the world mm-hmm. well we're only halfway through chapter 39 but we're also at an hour okay. so <laughs> I think we can wrap it up here yeah sure. um, I mean this is meaty and dense stuff so we can pick up with with a midway through chapter 39 next time. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Yeah. So thank you for continuing to work through this with me. You too. It was wonderful. Very edifying for me, at least I hope it is for listeners. Do one of you two have a, have a a little snippet of, of the readings we covered today that you want to leave us with? Well, it says, and because of the humility that we gain in these troubles, we are raised very high in God's sight by his grace. Thank you for listening to this episode. To find out more about Dame Julian, the revelations of divine love, the order of Julian of Norwich, or us, check the show notes to this episode. You can reach me, Chris Arnold, the producer of this series, at Apple Tree Pods on Twitter, or on Facebook, you can find the page Apple Tree Podcasts. That's all for now. We'll talk to you soon. May God bless you.